0: Injust and have
1: Welcome to Galaxy Moonbeam Nightsight. We are the retro talk program for nostalgia and baby boomer stuff here on the Galaxy Nostalgia Network. I'm Smitty. I'm Mike. And I'm George. And we welcome you to this a 45th anniversary look back at Apollo 11. Welcome, everybody, to this edition of Galaxy Moonbeam Nightsight. We're so pleased to have you with us. We're going to take. look back today at an event, probably the biggest event of the 1960s. Well, there were many events in the 1960s. Sadly, a lot of them were sad and tragic, but this was perhaps the happiest event of 1960s, and that is the landing on the moon of the Apollo 11 astronauts. And it's a a monumental story from uh, that time period and uh, we have a lot of clips that we're going to share with you from uh, CBS Radio News that are going to add to what we're going to talk about. And just real briefly, uh, George and uh, Mike, what are your uh, impressions? This was really a major event to close off the 1960s in the midst of a tremendous amount of, of turmoil. Mike?
2: I think it, it was the uh, the ultimate... Adventure. I was 16 years old, going on 16. I had not turned 15. I would not turn 15 for a couple of months. But it was the, to me, it was the essence of the culmination of a youthful adventure. It was bringing comic book together with science fiction movies and the Isaac Asimov novels and the little paperbacks of the years. And it all became real. And I can even remember being 15 and a half, almost 16 years old, thinking to myself, I actually lived in a time where somebody went to another planet, another world. I wonder what's going to happen by the time I'm 40, if I make it to 40, and between the age of 16 and 40, a lot of things have happened. Believe me, between the ages of, of 16 and 60, a lot of things have happened, but one of the most memorable things was, of course, the um, the moonwalk. I, it's, to this day, it affects me to where... We got there. I, man on the moon. It was a cliche for years. Maybe a hundred years before. Oh, the man on the when the man on the moon walks <laughs> or there's the man on the moon. The the green cheese on the the blue cheese on the moon. But it happened and it was real. And I lived in a time when it happened.
3: What I recall is that, and of course we're all in, this, in the same age bracket. But I had known people who recall when man first was able to fly with the Wright brothers, that is, you know, use motorized aircraft. And so basically from the early 1900s, in basically a a time path of 67 years, we went from the Wright brothers to the Apollo moon landing. And on a more personal level, I looked at the Apollo moon landing as a culmination of the right stuff. The Mercury 7 program that had America's best that were, you know, enrolled uh, in this exploration to journey into outer space, to go to other worlds. And, of course, as you know, my father was a part of this as a research scientist and aerospace engineer. So for me, the U.S. astronauts were personal heroes. Indeed, I had the opportunity and the pleasure and privilege to interview a number of them and meet them over the years. And then to actually see this happen, it was not only something that was personal, but as you said, Mike, you saw science fiction become science, fact. And not only that, it looked that space travel was going to be accessible to all of us. I myself imagined that I would be going to Mars someday, or perhaps beyond. It seemed very much within the realm of possibility, given the progression of knowledge, that we went not only from Wright Brothers to Apollo in just 67 years, but we went from Sputnik to Apollo uh, in just a little over 10 years.
1: Exactly, George. This certainly was an epic an epic journey that uh, began at the end of the 1950s, and uh, certainly the uh, the technology and the desire of, of the nation to uh, achieve this goal, and certainly it was uh, it was motivated by President Kennedy when he came into office. And we have uh, an excerpt from his State of the Union address on May 25, 1961, in which he specified the goal for this nation to uh, send a man into the moon and bring him back by the end of the decade. Let's listen to President John F. Kennedy and his State of the Union address.
4: Now it is time to take longer strides, time for a great new American enterprise, time for this nation to take a clearly leading role in space achievement, which in many ways may hold the key to our future on Earth. we possess all the resources and talents necessary but the facts of the matter are that we have never made the national decisions or marshaled the national resources required for such leadership. We have never specified long range goals on an urgent time schedule or managed our resources and our time so as to ensure their fulfillment. Recognizing the head start obtained by the Soviets With their large rocket engines, which gives them many months of lead time, and recognizing the likelihood that they will exploit this lead for some time to come, in still more impressive successes, we nevertheless are required to make new efforts on our own. For while we cannot guarantee that we shall one day be first, we can guarantee that any failure to make this effort will make us lost. take an additional risk by making it in full view of the world. But as shown by the feet of astronaut Shepard, this very risk enhances our stature when we are successful. But this is not merely a race. Space is open to us now, and our eagerness to share its meaning is not governed by the efforts of others. We go into space because whatever mankind must undertake. Free men must fully share. I believe that this nation should commit itself to achieving the goal before this decade is out of landing a man on the moon and returning him safely to the earth. No single space project in this period will be more impressive to mankind or more important for the long range exploration of space, and none will be so difficult or expensive to accomplish. But in a very real sense, It will not be one man going to the moon. If we make this judgment affirmatively, it will be an entire nation. I believe we should go to the moon.
1: President John F. Kennedy on May 25, 1961. George, I think that... uh The United States has always been blessed to have the right leader at the right time, at least uh, in the past, anyway, at uh, critical times. And uh, certainly President Kennedy uh, was uh, the right leader for that time period to challenge, offer that challenge uh, for America to send a man to the moon by the end of the decade.
3: Most definitely. Robert Zimmerman, in his seminal book titled uh, Genesis, the Journey of Apollo 8, which was the first manned journey to the moon, it was a flyby mission, he noted that what President Kennedy did was that he essentially lengthened the goalpost, if you will, if you want to use a sports analogy, because up to that point uh, in the early days of the 1960s, uh, the United States had... Lagged relative to what the Soviet Union Was doing in terms of space exploration And launching uh, Manned missions into space And so the question was set before us What can we do And what type of timetable And so what Kennedy basically did Is that he raised the stakes and said We haven't even been able to orbit a man Around the earth yet Because this is before John Glenn's mm-hmm. orbital mission We had put Shepard into space but not John Glenn And so he said We're going to go for the moon and so this was a game-changing event, mm-hmm. and it underscores for me what Carl Sagan said about imagination. You know, with, uh, imagination takes us to worlds that never were, but without imagination, we go nowhere. Mm-hmm. So this vision established by Kennedy was one that was driven by boldness, by courage, and the willingness to take risk to make imagination become fact.
1: It's interesting, we were talking before we went on the air, George, that President Kennedy had been advised by the uh, executives at NASA that, that the moon landing could be achieved as early as 1967. And uh, President Kennedy, fortunately, was conservative in his, uh, in his setting of that date because, of course, the, uh, the tragic Apollo 1 fire in 1967, which uh, took the lives of uh, astronauts Grissom, White, and Chaffee, caused a delay in the program of about a year and a half.
3: Very much so. And I think that what we uh, take from that is an understanding that uh, when one seeks to explore new ventures, new frontiers, there is indeed great risk. And so I think that his conservatism was indeed appropriate. But what I think is interesting about that is I listened to those words from his address in which he set forth the goal, the challenge to race to the moon. You look back uh, that the origins and the basis by which we accomplished this actually goes back to the end of World War II, when our nation, uh, at the conclusion of our victory uh, over the Axis powers, enabled us to bring here to the United States the best and brightest of The German scientist, namely Werner von Braun and his team of rocket scientists who went from being an enemy to great Americans. Uh, They became part of the uh, American experience. And I think it's an example of American exceptionalism. You know, when we look at uh, not only the technology that arose from that, that enabled us to power our way past the Soviets and win the race to the moon. It also was an example about how America as a nation brings forth the talents from everywhere, uh, including foes that have been vanquished. Indeed, so great did Werner von Braun feel about this nation that when he would make uh, speeches around the country, he would say, you'll have to excuse my accent. He goes... I'm from Alabama because that's where he was living uh, as, as, you know, in his primary role in terms of designing the rockets that would uh, take us uh, not only uh, into space but to the moon and beyond.
1: And there was a, a, a space race going on, and this this uh, story of trying to reach the moon is as much a story of the Cold War and uh, a competition with the Soviets as it was uh, trying to achieve that goal of landing a man on the moon.
2: You look back to July 1969, and it was just a little over eight years since the flights of of Gagarin and Shepard. And that's when the real race was on. Yuri Gagarin, Alan Shepard, I understand they became good friends. They they were just a couple of guys working for some big guys. But these were true pioneers. And then followed quickly by, as you say, Smitty, President Kennedy's challenge to put a man on the moon before the decade was out and it, had only, it was only seven months since NASA made the decision to send Apollo 8 all the way to the moon with that really unreliable, I don't say unreliable, but very, not very well tested Saturn V rocket. And that's quite a payload to have sitting under, underneath you, kind of like a Honda motorcycle engine, <laughs> but much bigger at, at, uh, with a louder boom if something went bad. But, you know, here we are on the morning of July 16th, and you've got Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin, and Michael Collins... They're sitting on top of this Saturn V at the launch complex at Kennedy. And think of the angst. Think of of just the brain cells, the apprehension, like I say, the anxiety. And after one and a half orbits, Apollo 11, they go for what what they refer to as translunar injection. Mm -hmm. Correct. And headed for the moon. And next stop, the moon. Not Stucky's for a pecan log. (laughs) To the moon, Alice, to the moon. And... I can just imagine just the energy, even on, even down below, back on planet Earth, the, the staff, uh, the support staff, but Collins later, Michael Collins later wrote down that the, he didn't even have confidence, and he referred to the eagle as the weirdest looking contraption I've ever seen in the sky, <laughs> and that, that didn't seem like he was being complimentary when he said it. I, I listened to some of those interviews, and, and then when it came to set the eagle down on the Sea of Tranquility... Armstrong even had to improvise. I don't, you read some of the history. He had to manually pilot the thing past where they were supposed to land because it was littered with rocks. And uh, seconds after he found a place to land, the computer started sounding alarms because these are not the chip computers we have today. These are integrated boards. And the computer started sounding alarms, which would raise a flag now, but basically, The computer was being asked to do too many things. That's
1: exactly right, Mike. And we have uh, another clip that we would like to share for you, and this is from the actual launch of Apollo 11. And these clips are from CBS radio from that time period, and uh, you're going to hear this one in the voice of Reed Collins. You'll be hearing Reed Collins all throughout these clips, joined by Stephen Rowan. But as we play these radio clips for you, listen to the emotion that you can pick up in, in the newscaster's voice. Certainly, as Mike was, was mentioned, the tension and the emotion and the anticipation and hoping that everything would go right, but there was always that little gnawing bit in the back of your mind. So keep that in mind as you listen to these clips. Here's Reed Collins on the launch of Apollo 11.
4: 20 seconds and counting.
5: The flame bucket, uh, the water deluge system 15, should be going. We're down to 15. We're down to 12, 11, 10, 9, Ignition. Ignition sequence start. We should see fire. Four, three, two, one. We have ignition. We have tremendous flame out there. All engines. And we have liftoff. She's rising. She's yawing now to clear the tower, that slight yaw. Now the huge tail is passing the tower. She's lifting up. We have tower clear. We have tower clear. We're beginning to feel the first thunderous roar. I can see her rising now as she's going up straight into the roll program, which she should be completing. We should expect to hear from the astronauts as this bit of land is beginning to shake with the power of it. The power of it as it goes through a slight wisp of cloud. Gliding off the side of her. Two miles. Jack Riley in Houston is telling us how high. one
2: Everything looks
5: miles now. Everything looks good. The sun to
0: the right.
6: We're to the of maximum
0: dynamic pressure now. Yeah, looks good here.
5: That's Mission Control voices. You're hearing. Everything looks good here. It's
0: 1350
5: on the start Bob. Set eight miles downrange, twelve miles high. Well into the pitch program now. Now there's not so much air resistance. We're getting a great. That comes out of that big seven and a half million pound thrust first stage.
0: Cliff Charlesworth taking a staging status. This Houston, you are. Go for staging.
5: The huge first stage has done its job. We should see staging very, very shortly.
0: Inboard engines out. Come inboard, brother.
5: The center rocket has shut down now on the first stage. Down below, a plume of smoke rises out of pad A. Downrange 35 miles, 30 miles high, standing by for the outboard engine cut down now. She's leaving a long vein of smoke behind her. We can see her with the naked eye staging. Staging. And ignition. And ignition of the second stage. The J2 engines that are going to power her okay, further.
0: Eleven Houston, thrusts go, all engines. You're looking good. right, you're not clear.
1: You can uh, just uh, hear the uh, the emotion in uh, in Reed Collins's voice, George.
3: Very much so. Gilbert, I have to say that you have literally created, no pun intended, a time capsule. <laughs> it feels as if we are transported right back to the events of July of 1969, and we clearly are there. Yes, there's a lot of emotion there, because think about this. The broadcasters that, at that time had witnessed uh, so much uh, in their lifetimes, in which you know we had not one, but two world wars, exactly. and suddenly... Uh, you know, aviation, which hadn't even been on the horizon at the time of their birth, now suddenly becomes mainstream. And from suddenly aviation, we're now involved with space flight, and we're going not just around the globe, but we are going to another world and perhaps beyond. This is this is really uh, a culmination of things we've only read about, things we've only dreamed, and those dreams are becoming true. We're a witness to it. That's the emotion that comes through
1: that's exactly right, George and we don't have uh, any of the television soundtrack, but I know that it's available on on YouTube but uh, I know that Walter Cronkite and Eric Severide were in for the uh for the moon landing uh phase of it, and uh, I remember that there's a a piece of the uh, of the broadcast where Walter Cronkite turns to Eric Severide and says and says, Eric, you and I are contemporaries. we covered World War II together, and here we are covering this so it certainly must have been a very emotional event for all of them.
2: Well, you know fellas, this was this was the probably the most accurate depiction of Team America within the last 100 years, most definitely since World War II, definitely because we were all participating in it. We were all waiting for the news flash. We were all waiting to hear what Cronkite had to add in the minute by minute reporting. And, you know, when the lunar module landed, it only had 30 seconds of fuel left remaining. And now that's, we're not exaggerating, it had 30 seconds of fuel remaining. Armstrong radioed into Houston Tranquility Base here, the Eagle has landed. And with those words, I think America, along with mission control, erupted in celebration. As that tension we talked about a few minutes ago, that tension just broke and a controller tells the crew, You got a bunch of guys down here turning that were about ready to turn blue and now we're breathing again. And I think that was the feeling, that was the the sensibility of America in general. This was a team, this was an American team effort. We were there and cheering these guys on, could it be done? Worried about their safety. And as Armstrong he planted his foot down in another world and at least, well, they indicate a half a billion people were watching on television, a half a billion people on their TV sets, a lot of those still black and white sets, as he climbed down that ladder and said, that's one small step for a man, one giant leap for mankind. That was the actual verbatim statement, by the way. Cronkite messed that up. You never see that on documentaries anymore, Cronkite's version, because now until the end of time they'd be wondering who said the right version, but it was, that's one small step for a man, one giant leap for mankind. And then as Aldrin joined in shortly thereafter, and he offered a simple but such a powerful description of that lunar surface. And I remember him saying it, it's magnificent desolation. They must be talking a lot about National City, buddy. But (laughs) but Magnificent desolation, and as they explored the surface for two and a half hours, collecting samples and taking photographs, any young guy especially guys like us imagine what it would be like to be taking samples of, of moon rock and you can't call it earth you call it i'm going to take samples of moon, moon. because these are not earth samples but just you you put yourself there at the moment with cronkite and some of the other broadcasters and you were living the moment as though you were there with them on the moon and that i remember absolutely I was just going to
3: add that another aspect that, that added, that heightened the emotion that all of us felt was that it was less than two years earlier that we were in the midst of deep sorrow and sadness because of the fire out of Apollo 1 that claimed the lives of astronauts Grissom, White, and Chaffee. And it looked like our program came to a dead stop. And less than two years later, we were able to literally. Rise like the phoenix from the ashes, and not only be able to launch the Apollo into uh, orbit, but to launch it to another world and to successfully complete that mission, which had been established eight years earlier. Truly remarkable. You can never feel the triumph until you've oftentimes felt the tragedy.
1: And as we said, George, at the beginning of the program, this was this, this fantastic uh, achievement was reached in the in the middle of a of a or at the end of a decade that was filled with so much bad news, so much violence, so much bad news really, and uh, to have it uh, culminate in in this was was certainly a a shot in the arm to the nation.
3: It was not only for the nation, but I believe for the entire world, because as the message that was left on the moon was noted, we came in peace for
2: all mankind. Even internationally, just some of the comments that we've talked about shortwave radios, I remember my dad had a had a big uh, shortwave, a portable, I, I don't think it was a transoceanic, but this big radio, and we were listening. And my mother's side being Greek, we tuned into it, and the Greeks were actually reporting the Greek news, which was a government news agency at the time, I don't know what it is now, but they were saying, Today is the day that the gods Hermes and Artemis got together. And in Greek mythology, Artemis. I believe is is the goddess of wilderness and out in the outback and exploration and of course Hermes is the god of boundaries and travel and maybe some technology but they called it the day the two gods got together and how important how compelling and this is from a country far far associated from what we were doing but just speaking of the Greeks, the Japanese had their own versions. Uh, the Russians were silent, yes <laughs> <laughs> checkmate What can you do? Yes you know I got i there's nothing I can do on this one, but later on, they came around the Russians and I think they even congratulated and they even put uh, a couple of Russian astronauts on the air as uh, play by play play by play uh commentators <laughs> uh, sideline <laughs> color whatever. but it was amazing how the world came together, but more importantly Americans and you, we, even we still go back to this was team America all the way fellas and you think about the one giant leap and how supportive we were and I think it was Collins at the end who said when they came back he said first of all when we got back in and, and started heading back that's when it really kicked in that we actually pulled this off. <laughs> he did, he still couldn't believe it sure. but you know you, you talk about Armstrong when he praised the hundreds of thousands of people there were literally hundreds of thousands of people involved in this, and quoting him, he said, every guy that that was setting up the tests, cranking a torque wrench, or just putting two wires together, they were saying, if anything goes wrong here, it's not going to be my fault. Uh, That was the perfection and the pride of this project as Americans.
3: When we think about this incredible accomplishment, not only the accomplishment of the decade, but perhaps maybe of the millennium. Mm-hmm. When you think about it, because this was uh, the culmination of the aspirations and hopes and dreams of so many people that, that talked about exploring other worlds, and here it was, we were able to land on another world. And we we look back on this, and it, and it reminds me of something that we think about. The three men associated with this first visit to another world have the initials A, A, and C. Mm-hmm. Armstrong, Aldrin, and Collins. They're the first ones to journey to the moon and land on the moon. And then I think about uh, when we look at Holy Scripture, who are the first three men here on earth? Adam, Abel, and Cain. So AAC from uh, earth to the moon.
1: Very significant, George. And As we were talking, there were just so many, uh, probably hundreds of subcontracting companies that were involved, that that manufactured everything involved from the communications to the rockets and probably hundreds of thousands of people that were involved. And as Mike was just quoting, even somebody that soldered two wires together in some small subassembly. This was uh, truly a, a, a national event that people, many, many thousands of people had a seemed to have a personal stake in.
3: It galvanized the nation. It embraced all of our consciousness. And and all of us were, were so very proud to be Americans. Indeed, I actually met a, a Soviet cosmonaut some years later that my father knew from his business, uh, Alexei Leonov. And he later flew... Uh, in what was the joint Apollo-Soyuz mission, but he had flown also in the 1960s, and I had already met several U.S. astronauts at the time, and I have to tell you that uh, this may sound a bit provincial on my part, but uh, I had to tell my father, I says, but Dad, he's the enemy. <laughs> <laughs>
1: <Yeah>. <laughs> well, uh, let's go to another clip that we have. We have several of these clips that we want to share with you, sort of to put you in the in the feeling of being there, and this is the uh, the beginning of the separation of the uh, Columbia and Eagle they were orbiting around the moon and they were getting ready for the, uh, for the separation, they were going to have to separate and uh, the, um, the lander was going to of course go into a lower orbit so let's listen to this uh, short clip from again from CBS Radio News Reed Collins and Stephen Rowan and uh, put you back in the mood as the separation maneuver began
5: Steve, we're coming up very close to that uh, separation maneuver which will be made by Mike Collins in the command module. A small thrust, uh, relatively speaking. Let's uh, see if we can hear something from aloft there. See you
6: later. The final words that uh, astronaut Neil Armstrong said to Michael Collins.
5: Mike Collins just translating away, not a big burn, but enough to get them miles apart uh, in relative terms.
6: We've learned a lot about orbital mechanics, and much of it has been learned because of a paper, a thesis that was written by one of the two men riding an eagle, Buzz Aldrin, who did his thesis at MIT on orbital mechanics and really wrote the book for uh, rendezvous techniques. One of uh, those techniques is automatically in play now on this separation because although they will separate to up to about three miles apart, if they did nothing further, they would come right back together again when they made one complete orbit of the moon. Thrusting,
5: thrusting away now. They're on the Earth's side of the moon. The separation burn done with the... Uh, reaction control
6: thrusters is an eight-second burn, and at a speed of
5: uh, about two miles an hour, which is a relatively gentle speed. And so he thrusts down and away a little bit, uh, a radial burn, I believe it is, toward the moon, and sliding beneath them now that bit of rather barren territory that has endured the assault of celestial age. And in two hours, they themselves, in eagle, should be coming down closer and closer toward it.
1: There's a lot of uh, emotion, as we've said, in the uh, voices of the uh, of the newscasters. George, it's, uh, it's interesting to try to draw a parallel between this that was happening, which was uh, reality, and science fiction. And, of course, uh, we think about uh, books and films, uh, uh, sci-fi classics such as Lost in Space, uh, Jules Verne's novels. Uh, talk to us a little bit about that.
3: What I think is remarkable here is how prescient Jules Verne's vision was. He wrote uh, two companion novels right after the American Civil War. The first one titled From the Earth to the Moon and the sequel Around the Moon. And what was so incredible about that is that everything he predicted in that novel, that's, or excuse me, those two novels, came to pass, including, in fact, his thesis was, is that it would require Yankee ingenuity, American exceptionalism, to explore space and to land on another planet. And then he goes on to describe, he being Jules Verne, that the rocket was launched from Florida and that the tracking of the activity would be done from the state of Texas. So when we think what happens 100 years later... It was launched from Florida, and the main tracking station was in Texas. The the the, uh, the flight control center, and beyond that, perhaps in tribute to uh, Mr. Verne, the name of the spaceship was Columbia, which had the exact name uh, from the Jules Verne novel as well. Amazing. I think with Lost in Space, what was interesting to me was that that was occurring concurrently uh, in in the mid to late nineteen sixties. And in Lost in Space, what we saw there was, of course, a journey to Alpha Centauri star system that was going to take place 35 years into the future. And it didn't seem so far-fetched, because if by the end of the decade of the 60s we're going to be on the moon, by the end of the century we should be looking to explore not only the uh, outer boundaries of our solar system, but go beyond to interstellar systems. And so the... uh, television or the pop culture at that time had that expectation of exploration and going as far as our imagination would take us. And indeed, Lost in Space, in perhaps a reflection of the, what was going on with the space program, had two noteworthy characteristics. One was that uh, there was a small landing craft that bore a striking resemblance to the lunar module. It was called the Space Pod. And then originally, the iconic Jupiter two Saucer shaped craft uh, that is now emblazoned in the imaginations and memories of all of us that grew up in that time period was originally titled in the pilot episode Gemini 12 because mm. uh, the Gemini program preceded the Apollo program. So a lot of linkage there yes. between science fiction that becomes science fact. And indeed, my father published a number of papers, and indeed, he actually co-authored the chapter uh, in my book, High Flight, where we talk about this very same transformation from fiction to fact.
2: Now, have either one of you been to the National Air and Space Museum in Washington, D.C.? I have, have not. That's, I have. that's on my bucket list. I have, I have. I understand it's it's incredible uh, that you actually need more than a day you do. to really
1: take it in. You do, Mike, because I was there on a very short visit of... Uh, I think two days, and it was just. I went in there, and I, I, I did. However, remember seeing? I believe it was the uh, the black colored uh, Mercury capsule mm-hmm. that's there. There's just so much to see. I recommend it. I hope you get to go because it, and and I hope I get to go again with more time. Yeah, John
2: Glenn's uh, astronaut. <laughs> yes. Too, you know, a lot of yes. That, you know, if it, if you want to get something not as elaborate as the Air and Space Museum. After Kennedy's speech, there was, an, as we were discussing, there, there was an intensive effort to get this underway. And in January '63, just a little known fact, um, Neil Armstrong and four other Apollo astronauts they took a field trip to Arizona. And the place in Arizona, it's known as the Meteor Crater, and there's also one called the Sunset Crater, and you can actually go see them. They're dormant volcanoes. And the geologists that were working with NASA, uh, geologists were briefing these guys, saying this is about as close as we can come to showing you what you're going to see when you encounter the moon. And that's another on my bucket list, to be able to go out there, because it's very desolate, Uh, given the reflection of the volcanic terrain and the volcanic geology in reflection to the sky, it mimicked moonscape. And that might be an interesting – and, you know, any of the listeners out there, if you've been out there, it it would be awesome. Send a photo out to us. Yes. Or tell us about what it was like to be out there because they kept going back to the loneliness, the desolation, almost an eerie, creepy feeling. It was just so desolate. Not to mention you're on the moon. You're not going to – you're not going to see the pizza man driving by, but uh, just desolation. And if you've ever been out camping, Smitty or George, and you know the feeling, even being high up in the woods and have maybe midweek or off season, and you're one of the few campers there in a spot, imagine a desolation with no trees and really no big rocks to speak of, just there, there is there.
1: I recall that there was some place, and I don't know whether it was Arizona, George. You might know, uh, where they actually uh, where they actually practiced landing yep. a craft in this terrain with craters and like I don't, I don't know if it was Arizona or not, but they they did practice uh, that quite a bit, obviously, before they the they launched to the moon.
3: Although I have not been to the locations that you mentioned, I wanted to mention that uh, with my god brother Christy, we went to Red Rock Canyon, which was where they filmed Lost in Space and Planet of the Apes because it looked like you were on another world and as you noted, Mike, that eerie desolation. And so, even though I you know didn't go to the places where they practiced, I went to places where they filmed some of our classic science fiction films. And it felt like you were on another world. And I remember, as Christy and I were going through there, we said, wow, it's like we really have left the Earth and we're exploring another another planet and uh, uh, opening a new frontier. It's remarkable.
1: And knowing Christy as well as I did, I can only imagine being out there with him. That, well, that must have been a fun experience. It
3: was a great experience. The <laughs> most blessed memory that I have.
1: Well, let's listen to another clip of uh, CBS Radio News from uh, that uh, day of the Apollo moon landing. Now, this is... A clip uh, which is about four minutes before the acquisition of signal from the Columbia and the command module, now of course, when they orbited the moon, as we mentioned they uh they separated and they were waiting for the signal to uh, return. I wanted to play this for you, for all of our listeners, simply because of the, again, we keep talking about the emotion and the involvement of the newscasters. And this was not just limited to these two individuals, Reed Collins and Stephen Rowan, but as Mike Bragg commented earlier, Cronkite and all the other newscasters were bringing this story to the world, and we just want you to listen to how they speak. It's probably not, nothing that you would hear on the air today, but certainly worthy of hearing. Uh, this is, again, a few minutes before acquisition of Signal, and place yourself, folks, if you will, at that time period, in July 20th, 1969, just shortly before man landed on the moon.
6: We're four minutes away now from the acquisition of Signal from the command module, Columbia, in which Michael Collins flies along uh, overhead uh, 65 miles or so above the surface of the moon, and uh, just a minute later, the acquisition of signal from Eagle, the lunar module. And uh, that will be the beginning of this period of uh, very high activity and very high communications. We expect to be hearing a lot from Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin in that period. We expect uh, then also to be able to relay to you on a minute-by-minute basis just what's happening as that lunar module makes its way down to the surface of the moon.
5: Incredible, Steve, that in in just 20 minutes this thing is about to begin. It's, um... I see the clock going around, I see other people doing other things, and uh, we talk about it, and we sit here, but uh, the mind just refuses almost to accept it, doesn't it?
6: It's, uh, it's a magnificent moment in history, Reed, one that... Uh, Every reporter in our business wants to have a part in covering and one that uh, thousands of reporters from all over the world are now sitting, listening to, watching, waiting for these final minutes with the full knowledge that the stories they write today will be part of the history that will be conveyed to their children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren for many hundreds of years to come.
5: And this is truly a a time to be alive, a a blessed moment almost in the relatively small span that we're
1: given. George, talk to us about that. That's a moving clip. What a powerful,
3: powerful moment, and I was struck by this fact as I was listening to this uh, wonderful uh, clip from that era, The Power of Words, Mm -hmm. and members of the listening audience, I'm very privileged to be here with two Excellence in Journalism Award winners, Gilbert and Mike, And I would love each of you to comment about the power of words. What I am struck by as we're hearing these clips uh, from that period in July of 1969 is the vivid portrayal that is used with words. I mean, keep in mind, we're listening to radio broadcasts, and yet when you listen to their words and you close your eyes, you are actually there. You can feel everything that is going on. And you both being uh, uh, award-winning professional journalists – comment to us if you would about that. I mean, that reflects an important moment in your profession, does it not?
1: It does, George, and thank you for for mentioning that. And I'm every time I think of the power of words, I think of one of my uh, broadcast heroes, Edward R. Murrow. And of course this was radio that we're listening to or these are radio broadcasts, and even at that time period, the broadcasters, the newsmen were reared on radio. They had to give a descriptive and a and a thorough Description of what was happening and the power of words, selecting the right words to describe such a monumental event as, as this, as the Apollo 11 moon landing. It's moving to just hear them and what they say, and uh, to know that they had seen so much. They had seen the Second World War, they had seen, most of them had seen the Depression, they had seen so much. Uh, again, we talked about the 1960s and so much strife they had seen all of this and they were able now to put into words this monumental landing of man on the moon and the anticipation and the the fear but the confidence of, of being able to 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 do that and the fact that uh, using the right words to convey to a worldwide audience their innermost feelings is something that uh, we all should uh, should strive for in everything that we do mike
2: Well, the buzzwords of the 21st century that came about in the products and the systems and the services that came about, not necessarily precisely attributed to the moon landing, but to space exploration and the the NASA, the United States American space program in general, we think of words like global positioning systems, satellite communications, personal computers, earthquake warning systems, weather prediction uh, technology, And more pharmaceutical knowledge than will fit in this show. Uh, New materials, insulation materials, semiconductors, composite fibers, aerogels, vacuum processes, microgravity processes. Sure, uh, we've put our space exploration programs for the most part on hold, but the other people, the Chinese and the Russians, they couldn't do it without the stuff that we've done. And historically, I look back as a researcher and as a journalist and see that instead of having a war and possibly a nuclear holocaust where millions if not billions of people were killed during the, the days with the problems between Russia and the United States, we had a, a little more civilized war, a war that took place in the... Uh, in the laboratories of space exploration programs, in the laboratory of the Russian aeronautical and space programs, and in the vast offices of NASA. Outside of Earth's orbit, it was called the space race. And I think that actually was a more civilized way that two major powers could compete with each other in warfare. There's warfare that goes on every day, Smitty and George, as you know, in corporate America. But this one took place and and bought time and created a a buffer, so to speak, a peaceful buffer, where two superpowers who basically were very paranoid and very suspicious of each other, like they say, could take it out to the street. In this case, they could take it out to space. And I think that is why we enjoy the peace that we do today, Uh, peace as far as superpowers. We have unrest in other parts of the world by other type of people, but two superpowers that got together and said... Let's get to the moon. I'll, uh, I'll race you to the moon. Beat you there.
3: And not only that, What what is interesting about that is the triumph of free people, because ultimately that was the difference. And I think that when we look at the vision, the, the uh, goal that was set by Kennedy, it was accomplished by free people. In fact, he noted that in his address, that it was free people able to take initiative, to take risk, to use ingenuity and imagination, that's what it took. And that's ultimately why Robert Zimmerman, in his book Apollo 8, Genesis, he noted why uh, the uh, American space program was able to triumph, because it was driven by the freedom to innovate, the freedom to take risks. And that's why I think that uh, you know when I hear companies like the Boeing company recently this week announce that they're no longer going to pursue moonshot programs, When we stop taking risks, when we play to not lose as opposed to playing to win, we don't advance as as, as a society. And, Mike, I think you did a beautiful exposition about the advancement of human progress that resulted from us taking the competition from warfare into the context of exploration. And in that case... It sort of reminds me of the best of all rivalries, that in the context of of exploration, we elevated both of our societies. Indeed, we elevated all of mankind for one brief span in time, all united, uh, to celebrate that the eagle had
2: landed. Absolutely, George. I think every corner of civilization benefited by uh, the space programs, exploration programs. By both superpowers. Look at uh, when I mentioned pharmaceuticals, inoculations, anticipating viruses and bacteria, medicines that came about. And uh, kind of a funny, uh, a funny quote. Uh, they asked a NASA guy because this is in the recent uh, presidential administration where we're pretty much downsizing our space exploration programs. But a NASA, uh, a NASA guy mentioned, "Well, if God had wanted us to go to Mars, He would have given us more money." And I thought that pretty much sums up, because it was a little machine that swallowed up money for decades and decades. But unlike a lot of other government programs, and this is not a political show, although we have a license to talk politics because we're a nostalgia show, I always give that caveat. Uh, It was one of the programs we threw a lot of money at that actually returned many, many things, many good things for the quality of life of uh, the world global village.
3: And it continues to do so to this very day. You know, we the, the economics are for every 1,000 aerospace jobs, almost 3,000 other jobs are created. But beyond the economic benefit, the societal benefit, the cultural benefit, we grow, we expand. And it's interesting to note that the consequence of that tragic fire that killed the astronauts of uh, Apollo 1, it actually had far-ranging uh, consequences that are are not really uh, uh, well known, but we talked about it uh, in that program, Man, Moon, Media, and Myth. And what I noted in that program was that we actually had programs on the books uh, to uh, proceed and establish a moon base, and then beyond that, to journey to Mars and have a, a man mission to Mars. In fact, my father worked with astronaut Pete Conrad, who I also had an opportunity to interview. And he was part of that, and that was what we were looking to do. But what happened was, when the fire occurred, all of those programs got shelved. And indeed, everything had to be allocated to fulfill Kennedy's goal of getting to the moon. But regrettably, what came afterward was basically shelved, and that's why uh, the program basically stopped. And unfortunately, instead of becoming an exploration program, it became, and this is not meant to be a denigration to NASA, but it became... Um, more like a, a, a school bus in outer space. I'm referring, of course, to the space shuttle. And while a lot of good things came out of the space shuttle, it basically is a school bus. We're not going beyond uh, the uh, the uh, to the other worlds like we originally had planned to do. And I think that's what Zimmerman talks about today in his book Genesis, that what we really need to continue to do is to promote and reward that imagination. There are a lot of private companies now that are promoting space exploration. And it's his belief, and I share that conviction, that I think that we will see those goals that were once part of the programs that my father was involved in, astronaut Conrad was involved in, that they will be done, but obviously not in the original timetable that was envisioned.
1: And. Uh that seems to be now, George, that uh, seems like private industry is, is getting more of a foothold in possible missions to the moon as, as opposed to NASA. And we'll just have to wait and see how all that comes out in the years to come. Well, we have another clip now, which is the culmination of this whole event, and that is the approach phase and the landing of Apollo 11 on July twentieth, 1969. Let's listen to that. And again, place yourselves, folks, in that time period. Perhaps some of you remember that. but those of you who may be a little bit too young, place yourself in that time period as man prepared to land on the moon. We're
0: now in the approach phase. Everything looking good. Altitude 5,200 feet.
5: Now the radar should be telling them their, their altitude good. precisely. Roger, copy. The rate of descent.
0: Altitude 42. Good you're a go for landing. Over. Good heavens. Roger, understand. Go for landing. 3,000 feet. alarm. Twelve oh one. one Roger. twelve oh one. alarm. Where go. Same time. we go.
5: They're
6: going in. 2,000
0: feet. 2,000 feet. 2, into the egg, forty-seven degrees, Roger. 37 degrees. They got a momentary
6: alarm on their system there, but decided that
0: Eagle looking great. Here go. It was nothing. Altitude sixteen hundred. Fourteen hundred feet, still looking very good. Roger, twelve oh two. We copy it. Thirty-five degrees. 35 degrees, 750, coming down to 23. 700 feet, 21 down, 33 degrees. 100 feet, down at 19. 540 feet, down at
5: 30, and at 15. Coming down to low gate now, the real landing phase. There's 400
0: feet down at 9. Gate forward. 10 and 50 feet, down at 4. 30 a half down. They're, uh, tagged on, uh, with all 10 and feet, down 3 47 forward.
5: Contact light.
0: Okay, engine stop. Stop DC in. A deep end. How did he? Heart control, both auto-decent, engine command override right off. Engine arm off. we 13 is in.
5: They're on the moon.
0: We copy you down, Eagle. Houston, uh... Tranquility base here. The Eagle has landed. Roger tranquility. We copy you on the ground. You got a bunch of guys about to turn blue. We're breathing again. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Do you believe it? You're looking good here. Now a quick hey, checkup. We're going to be busy for a minute. We're
5: going to be busy for a that minute as
0: well. Right. Take care of I'll get the
5: They have just a
6: very few seconds here to decide whether they want to stay or whether they want to leave right away.
0: Very smooth touchdown.
5: Very smooth touchdown. I don't believe it yet. Tranquility base. And the Eagle has landed. Going through a, a wild set of post landing checklists.
0: Roger, Eagle, and you are safe. T1, over. Eagle, you are safe for T1. Roger. And with him, safe for T1. Roger, and we see
1: you venting the ox. That is still moving to listen to 45 years later. Uh, just a couple of things. Of course, you hear them calling out all, all, all those numbers. They were literally hovering over. The surface of the moon, as Mike uh, Bragg mentioned earlier in the course of the show, the the computer program was taking them directly into uh, an area that was full of boulders, so they manually took over operation, and they had 30 seconds of fuel left when they landed. And the alarms that you keep hearing reference to, those were those primitive computers that uh, were doing their job. They just simply were saying, you're asking me to do too much. That's what the alarms were, but uh, at any rate, very moving to listen to. George?
3: Two unrelated thoughts come to mind as we heard this most moving broadcast from that era. One is that there is the story that a Green Beret soldier had laid a wreath uh, at the gravesite of President Kennedy. And uh, it was shortly after the, the moon landing, and he said very poignantly, Mr. President, the eagle has landed. And then the other thing that comes to mind as I as I listen to this are the comments that, that uh, Gilbert, that both you and Mike noted earlier about the skillful handling by Neil Armstrong as they are running out of fuel and having to change the landing site. My father was a classmate uh, with Neil Armstrong at the University of Southern California in the early 60s in the Master's of Engineering program. And what my father told me, and it's emphasized here by the broadcast we've heard today, is that Neil Armstrong was the right man at the right place because he not only had the piloting skills that were necessary, but he had also, of course, flown in combat, was a decorated combat veteran. So he dealt with, uh, shall we say, unstructured and non-routine situations. But he also was an expert engineer. He was a great test pilot as well. He flew the X-15 rocket plane, which uh, presaged uh, the manned spacecraft expeditions, but very importantly, gentlemen, he had the seriousness of purpose. He had the strength of character. He had the humility that one requires to be first.
1: These were truly uh, the right men at the right time, and, and that is so true of, of Neil Armstrong. And there are many uh, more hours of these broadcasts that uh, that exist, of course. And they do make reference on several occasions to his quiet demeanor and the fact of just getting things done with uh, no monkey business, no emotion, no nothing just what needed to be done and uh, certainly the right man at the right time. Well, we've heard the landing of the, uh, of the lunar lander and now let's hear the final clip that we have for you and that is the setting of the first human foot on the moon.
6: foot reaching down, and now stepping into that picture. Okay, Neil, we can see you coming
0: down the ladder now. Okay, Neil, we can see you coming. Okay, I just checked uh, getting back up to that first step. Uh, it's uh, that hasn't collapsed too far, but uh, it's adequate to get back up. Little
5: jump. Now he's standing on I the footpad. I believe foot pad. he's on the footpad. yes. It didn't collapse too far and that gave him a longer
0: step. Uh, uh, buzz, this front. is Houston. F2. i one 2nd for shadow photography on the sequence camera. Okay. I'm uh, at the foot of about uh, one or two inches, Uh, although the surface appears to be
5: Well, there he is. He's on the moon. Has he stepped with that left foot away? It's a little difficult to tell. He's done it. That's one small step for man, one
0: giant leap.
1: And there, of course, the culmination of the Apollo 11 mission with Neil Armstrong uh, stepping on the surface of the moon. George, as we get ready to wrap the show up, uh, we've got a little bit more uh, than an hour because there's just so much to cover here. But. You mentioned about Neil Armstrong, but talk here about the exceptionalism of the U.S. astronauts, all of them, uh, going back to John Glenn, uh, Alan Shepard, all the way to the, all the final astronauts, uh, truly a, uh, a unique group of men.
3: Very much so. These represent not only America's best, but the best of the best. All of the astronauts were heroes Before they were astronauts, they were decorated combat veterans. They were scientists. They were engineers. They had risen to the top of their profession and their disciplines. And so they also had to add to that bravery, courage, pioneering spirit, risk taking. And, you know, there's an old saying that heroes get remembered, legends never die. I have to say that for the U.S. astronauts, they're not only heroes. They're legends, and their their memory will
2: live forever as far as I'm concerned.
1: Absolutely, and what a good way to, to remember them.
2: And if you don't happen to have enjoyed the the live presence of the entire moonwalk, had you not been born or had you been busy that day, well, I, you'd probably been the only American that, that was too busy that day to watch what was going on or that whole period of days. There are literally thousands of sites on the internet, and, and the National Geographic specials, History Channel. You'll never run out of resources if you're interested in one of the most monumental, the monumental events. Definitely, for I would have, you'd have to agree, fellas, of, of civilization yes. when human beings walked on the moon. It's It's been a wonderful hour. We could go five hours on oh, this one or easily, more. Easily, easily. But uh, good production, Smitty. Great stuff, George. And we're going to wrap up now. We want to tell you thanks so much, listeners, for supporting us by listening, supporting us by email, supporting us just by supporting us, especially those who uh, submit their likes on our Facebook page. Our Facebook page is Galaxy Moonbeam Night Sight. Go to Facebook. Uh, join up and like us. Uh, our website is galaxymoonbeamnightsight.com. Remember, Galaxy nightsight is S-I-T-E, sight, Nightsight at gmail.com is our email address. Until next time, we wish you all the best and shoot for the moon. Uh, we'll be talking to you again soon. Thanks for joining us. I'm Mike. I'm Smitty. I'm George. We'll be back soon, Galaxy Moonbeam Nightside on the Galaxy Nostalgia Network.
1: This is the Galaxy Nostalgia Network.